Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to thedispatch.com to get all of... I can't even say all of the good things, because there are good things outside of the realm of The Dispatch, but many good things, many useful things. Um... And uh, news and opinion that uh, doesn't work from the assumption that the job of a journalist is to make you very, very angry at everything, Um, which may not always be my inclination, but I think it's better for the country if not everybody um, does what I do, um, rather they do what I say. Uh, Speaking of doing what you say, I'm still, well, before we get to that, um, I'm still kind of um, torn about this. doing these solo podcasts. Well, I'm still torn about doing the solo podcast, but I'm, I'm even more torn. Um, there's sort of like an X, Y axes of tornness, um, about doing these things, um, early in the morning. Like I'm doing this before I get to the G file because, uh, you know, the coin operated machine in my brain, um, uh, needs more quarters this early in the morning. And I'm just not quite there yet. um, and also just having human actual carbon-based life forms listening to me in real time makes it even feel more awkward. Um, but, uh, yeah. So speaking of doing what, what, you know, I say rather than what I do, um, I, uh, um, saw this piece on NPR's Twitter feed and on their, I went and read it on their website and it was all about how, it turns out that recycling is um, basically a bunch of BS. That very little stuff actually gets recycled. And the stuff that does get recycled really doesn't have a very long shelf life, in part because recycled plastic is more expensive than new plastic. Um, so it just doesn't make a lot of economic sense. And, uh, you know, and I have. Listeners know I have a soft spot in my heart for NPR. I actually think it gives you better news than the cable networks, as long as you understand that it's coming from a very, very woke place. And if you can get past the three or four or seven pieces every morning on um, various you know, problems with structural racism, uh, they actually do pretty good reporting and um, all that. And I think that sometimes they get confused for some of the crazier left-wing stuff that is on public radio, but is not in fact NPR like Pacifica radio is the last reasonable broadcast before the communist junta takes over the radio station. Um, and the DJs there, uh, welcome 
the men with rifles saying it took you long enough. Um, but anyway, back to the recycling thing. Uh, the funny thing about the piece was it, it, it said that it was all basically based on big oils lies. The reason why we've been, re- we've been recycling for a quarter fricking century or more is based on big oils lies and big oil told us that, um, recycling works and blah, 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 because, you know, big oil is, you know, also part of the plastics industry, I, I guess makes total sense. And, um, look, I have, I have no doubt that, that big oil spun up recycling as a, oh, and this is apparently all come to the fore because China is no longer taking our garbage. Um, although I do believe we released Aquaman there, so that's not entirely true, but anyway, um, uh, they're no longer taking our, our garbage to be recycled, which probably really wasn't all that recycled anyway when it went there, but it, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. But so anyway, I, I, I am sure there's some major corporate strategy that went into uh, pushing recycling as an option, as a way to save face for uh, the plastic industry and the, and the oil industry. But the idea that the only people who have been lying to me for the last quarter century about recycling have been like the mustache twirling Texans from mobile or Exxon or Texaco or whatever just strikes me as, uh, uh, well, in this case, it's quite an appropriate phrase, really hot garbage because, uh, in my life, the only people who have ever scolded me about, you know, other than maybe members of my own family at various points, but, uh, the only people who've ever scolded me from a position of some sort of authority have always been people of the sort of left and eco environmental side. And it's fine. They can claim that they've been, they were lied to and they were just passing on the lie and all that kind of stuff. But it's just worth thinking about this for a second. We have how many journalists now, how many majors in undergrad for environmental journalism how many specialties in grad school for environmental journalism um how many uh sections of the newspaper think that covering the environment basically means covering climate change um you know this is a point that that steve uh hayward made a long time ago was that you know the first big climate summit thing which was in i think rio in 90 i want to say 92 or 93 um it had two major priorities, biodiversity and climate change. And very quickly, biodiversity kind of fell by the wayside and it just became climate change as the, as the major global concern. And over that time, journalism became, environmental journalism basically became climate change journalism. And if you can't fit a story into the climate change model, um, it's not worth covering, or at least it doesn't get the same coverage, which drives me crazy because I care a lot about like the state of the oceans. Yeah. Which is partly a climate change issue, but it's also overfishing and, and other things. And I care about, um, uh, charismatic megafauna. I, I want a lot more elephants out there and a lot more mountain gorillas. Um, because I think it makes, it makes the world a more magical and wonderful place. And if you're talking about conservatism being gratitude, um, I'm very grateful to be able to show my my daughter, when she was a little kid, pictures of elephants and, and gorillas. And I just think it's one of the things that actually a real conservatism based in a real conservationism based in conservatism 
would be much more aggressive about figuring out ways to protect um, these treasures. Um, but anyway, be that as it may, all of these reporters flooding the zone, all of these network specials, no one could go figure out that recycling was a bunch of hokum. I mean, I've known that recycling was a bunch of hokum uh, for a long time. And to the New York Times' credit, you know, they ran this great piece by John Tierney, I believe in 1996, called uh, Recycling is Garbage. Um, and since then, you know, folks at places like Cato and, and other, you know, and at CEI, they've been making, they've been pointing this stuff out for a very long time that recycling um, is a deeply flawed approach, deeply economically inefficient. Um, leads to all sorts of resources being wasted that could be better spent in other ways. Um, and I just think it's funny that until they could come up with the hook to blame it on big oil, uh, that it was okay. Just, I mean, I think maybe part of it is because they think it's a way, it's a backdoor way of raising people's consciousness and thinking about their consumerism and yada, 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 yada. Uh, but I mean, 25 years in, 30 years into this recycling regime, uh, you'd think more, a few of more of these like intrepid reporters would have, you know, I don't know, followed the recycling trucks where they dump their stuff out. Because I had a friend who did that. It was an environmental studies major at AU 25 years ago. And he saw that the environment, that the, the plastic trucks and with the, the trucks with the plastic and the glass, whatever, they dumped it in the same pile with the other stuff. Um, so anyway, I, I just, I, I thought that was really funny. And, um, uh, and it, you know, it's like a classic example of only being able to find the news hook if you can blame it on the other team for some reason. Um, speaking of that, so I listened to Morning Joe this morning. I still have a soft spot in my heart for Morning Joe, you know, and I, and I generally like Scarborough, even though he's moved pretty far left. And, and I still do hold him, I mean, he hates it when I mention this and, uh, but I do hold him partly accountable. He and Mika for the normalization of Donald Trump in those early, early days of the 2016 cycle. Um, and he's got his responses to all that and that's fine, but, uh, he has not persuaded me that he doesn't, uh, or have his fair share of blame and all of that. Um, regardless, I still like the guy. I still watch the show. I used to find it more useful pre-Trump because Scarborough being a being at the time a somewhat, you know, he's a smart, I think he's actually a smart guy. I think he's a kind of a generic Republican. Um, at, at, or at the very least, he sees issues. He has the capability of seeing issues from the Republican point of view, um, which made in a weird way, Morning Joe pre-Trump, um, one of the most right-wing shows in mainstream journalism precisely because what you could do is he was like the um i don't know what it is from chemistry but he was like um the the acid paper or whatever he would no he was like the irritant he was like the sand like forget chemistry because i'm going to mess that up and i've got to tell you after doing this stuff for 25 years in one way or another um when you get things like chemistry or engineering wrong you hear from chemists and engineers and I don't want to do that. You are all great and wonderful and wise people. So I retract those statements. Uh, he was like the, 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 the bit of sand in the oyster, right? Because he was just one tick to the right of sort of moderate 
mainstream liberal conventional wisdom, you could see how he made some of his panelists who were of these sort of died in the wool conventional wisdom liberal journalists uncomfortable because he would shake them slightly off the talking points and you could see how some could recover and explain their positions and some couldn't. And I think one of the problems with Morning Joe now is that it's like a lot of MSNBC. Um, it's a whole bunch of guests uh, in violent agreement with one each other with each other on almost everything. And I just find that boring. I find it boring on Fox too, where people just take turns say, taking essentially the same position. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so I listened to it this morning and there was a little bit of a different disagreement between Jeffrey Goldberg, no relation, um, and, and Scarbo and the rest of the team, Scarbo was making the case that there's no such thing as woke capital, that none of these corporations are in fact woke. They read some piece from the Atlantic to that effect. Uh, they're just all following their bottom line. And, um, and that's why they're, you know. Uh, urinating from a great height on Georgia it's because they want the 18 to 34, 18 to 44 market demo, blah, 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 blah. And they're just going where their, their, their market is and where the, the, the zeitgeist is among young consumers and yada, yada, yada. I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth to that. Um, I've made similar points many times. Um, I brought this up with the Crenshaw podcast about how maybe this is one of the reasons why, um, Republicans should get better at figuring out how to market themselves to people who um, don't spend their spare time writing angry letters to newspapers or yelling at clouds. Um, but um, regardless, the Jeffrey was like made the point that he thinks, I mean, he had to do it in sort of in a coded way, that there is in fact such a thing as woke capital, that there are CEOs or heads of marketing and that kind of thing who um, do think that they are um, uh, that they have some sort of obligation to, to be progressive in one way or the other. I want to just sort of split the baby here. I think it's sometimes true and it's sometimes not. Um, and I find that, you know, I mean, let's, let's start with something easy. The Cokes, uh, you know, the Koch brothers, according to the left, everything that they proselytize Everything that they say is all about expanding their profit margins. And um, I've always thought this was hilarious because, um, you know, I think it was David. If it was Charles, I apologize. Um, uh, David Koch ran for, I think, vice president on the libertarian ticket in 1980. If you think, if you want to amortize or if you want to cost out what, uh, what, what, a, what one of the Cokes makes per hour. If you think running a utterly doomed campaign to be the libertarian vice president is, has a huge rate of return on that time investment, you're nuts. Same thing when they write books, you think like doing von Miesian market-based management theory books, um, is in the highest, is the highest best use of one of these guys's time. Um, they actually care. I mean, you can, and you can think they're wrong. That's fine. Um, you can think they're wrong about everything. Uh, I don't, I think they're wrong about some things. Um, but the idea that somehow they're just following their bottom line is really, really stupid. 
because they waste an enormous amount of their precious time doing things that they think are for the good of the country, or at least that are um, for good for the world and their principles and whatnot. And, um, and the same thing goes for lots of rich people. I mean, there's one of the things I wish a lot of people under a concept people understood better, which is uh, a Veblen good, right? This is just uh, something that you purchase or a service that you purchase. You know, it doesn't have to be a physical thing that you do for psychological reasons to um, impress people. Uh, you know, there's that great scene in Wall Street where uh, what's his name? Michael Douglas is talking about how, you know, uh, rich wasps love to be on the boards of zoos. It's absolutely true. I mean, it's like, it's not worth a lot of these rich people's time to be on the board of the Bronx zoo in an easily calculable, um, cost benefit analysis, but it provides prestige. It provides a, it provides a psychic balm that you're giving back in some way. And, um, uh, and lots of corporations work under these, these same sorts of things. And, uh, I don't care very much whether the argument is about whether or not this is just good for their bottom line and good marketing or not, but let's, let's, let's say that it's true. This is one of the things that kind of drives me crazy is the way the left talks about corporations. First of all, they get very mad at right-wingers for, for talking about how corporations are people too. Um, they get it gets very vague about which argument they're actually angry at. Are they angry at the sort of the legal concept of corporate personhood, um, which basically says that corporations can have standing in court, um, and therefore due process rights and all that kind of stuff? If they, if 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 they're against that, I, I I think that's nuts. But okay, um, or is their position sort of like against like the Mitt Romney position that when you tax corporations? at the end of the day, you're actually taxing people because corporations will pass along the costs of the taxes to their consumers, um, which I think is an eminently defensible position. Either way, if you, if you hate the idea that corporations are people, stop calling them greedy, right? I mean, why are you anthropomorphizing corporations? You know, do inanimate objects have emotional states? You can't have it both ways. And, and I think it's funny how in this instance where corporations are actually doing what the left or liberals, whatever you want to call them, um, want, a lot of them would rather make the argument that they're doing it because it's good for their bottom lines. It's good for marketing. It's good for their, uh, you know, to be on the right side of the argument with, with young consumers and all that, which again, all may be true, but if you notice what they're really arguing is that this is sort of a right side of history kind of thing and corporations um, want to be on it, which again runs against the problem, runs against the claim that they're all greedy and evil. And this, you know, this goes back to my first book. There is this deep seated thing. It's this vestigial, it's sort of like the, 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 this, the gunk left on the bathtub from Marxist bathwater about how corporations are right wing. Um, and greedy and all of that kind of stuff. And the historical evidence of this, at least in the, like in the, for the last century and a half, uh, is quite mixed. Um, certainly in the last century, 
Um, because corporate, first of all, it, it depends. Obviously, it depends what you mean by right wing. If you mean, you know, rapaciously libertarian, wanting no government regulations, that's one thing. If you mean culturally conservative, that's another thing. But on both fronts, corporations, more often than not, are neither of those things. Corporations were well ahead of politicians when it came to things like gay marriage and gay benefits and all that kind of stuff. Corporations were well ahead of politicians often on issues of race. Uh, you know, people forget that, you know, this is the, one of the points I'm going to get to the Jim Crow stuff in a little bit, but the, one of the points that drives me crazy about how people talk about, you know, the Jim Crow era is that, um, and this is a point Thomas Sowell makes businesses didn't want racial segregation for the most part, big businesses at least didn't, you know, small private businesses. I'm sure there were plenty that did, but the big businesses didn't want it. Uh, because it was more expensive. The bus companies in the South were like, you know, you're, this is a huge regulatory burden you're putting on us to enforce your policies about separating whites and blacks. Um, and it made it more difficult for them. And, uh, you know, there's this great line from, a, I think it's Augustus Bush who owned the St. Louis Cardinals when he found out that he didn't have any, you know, that Jackie Robinson had, you know, joined the league and he's like, why don't we have a black player? And, um, got some pushback and he said, people look, black people drink beer too. Um, and this is like one of the good arguments that, um, that sort of anti-capitalist right reactionary right wingers have is that one of the things that big corporations and big business try to do is impose mass efficiencies on, on societies that turn everybody into a consumer of equal value. And, um, I think as a general proposition, the, the role of businesses in, in pushing back against things like racism has been a very good thing, but I, we can talk about the right wing reactionary other critiques another time. Um, but you know, and then there's like this idea that somehow, uh, corporations just fuel, you know, only fund, um, uh, you know, their ideological, um, support networks, which are all right wing. Um, even though like most one percenter money, most wall street money goes to Democrats now. Um, uh, you know, William Simon, I think in the ninth, in like 1982, he wrote this report, former treasury secretary, he was doing it for, I can't remember which foundation he wrote the report about how one of the most peculiar things in our time is how large businesses tend to fund their enemies. Um, and this has been more true than not for the last hundred years. There's this really weird battered spouse relationship between big business and, um, the people who hate it most. It's sort of like there's a Seinfeld where George Costanza is attracted to this woman in part because she hates him so much. And he just sits there going, oh, I can't take it. She, she hates me so much. I have to have her. Um, and there's something about that in, in the, in the business community where, you know, the biggest fun, they think they can buy off and co-opt their enemies. And I guess sometimes it must work. Um, but most of the time it doesn't true story. There was a guy who wrote a book called the suicidal corporation who worked for the, um, who worked for fortune. I think I got it wrong in the Crenshaw podcast and he, uh, or wherever I was talking about it, I can't remember now. Um, uh, maybe it was in that back alley. Anyway, 
uh, he worked for the Fortune. He worked for Fortune magazine, and Ford reached out to him to because they're getting all sorts of grief about the Pinto and you know, Ralph Nader and all that kind of stuff, and they wanted to have a public relations campaign to to redeem themselves. And this guy, who's a good Hayek reading sort of free market guy, took the job first of all because it paid really well, but second of all because it was um, an opportunity to really get in the trenches and fight for their principles, sort of like the way Ronald Reagan did when he was the head, he was the head spokesman for GE. And, um, and he wanted to write this op-ed defending the free market, defending the quality of the product, defending the, the, the grand ingenuity and um, power of capitalism and American, in American business. And Ford was like, no, we can't do anything like that. Um, and instead they had an internal, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like suggestion box kind of thing. They put it up for, they, they threw it open and said, everybody sort of like it, throw in your suggestions, man, my words, they know come easy. Um, and, um, the winning one was that Ford should fund Washington week in review. The idea being that being the sponsor of a PBS, you know, uh, pundit fest, show that airs on weekends to people who are you know who when they get their second fill of their martini they call it their dividend um will somehow change american culture and animosity towards capitalism and um the idea that like um you can't have it both ways you can't on the one hand say corporations are evil corporations are greedy corporations are um uh, you know, fueling and funding the culture war, and at the same time say the corporations only do what their bottom line dictates, and that's why they're taking the Democrat side on the Georgia civil rights stuff. I wrote my column for today on this thing that I, I talked about briefly on the Dispatch podcast on Wednesday. That it's really bothering me. Um, is this idea, you know? If you listen to the debates on TV um, or listen to them on radio, um, uh, one of the things that ha I keep seeing happen over and over again, I've seen it happen with um, Nicole Wallace, with Rahm Emanuel, with a bunch of other people, is um, it's, a, it's this Mott and Bailey argument. And, and listeners know a Mott and Bailey argument. It's basically a bait and switch argument. It's where you make a sweeping statement like... Um, all left-handed people named Todd are uh, need to be executed, and and then when you get confronted on it, you fall back into a more defensible position and say, "Well, I really meant just that one left-handed dude named Todd, or whatever." And uh, what you get on this stuff is you get people just insisting, pounding the table that that the Georgia law is the new Jim Crow, as Joe Biden called it. And saying that this is Jim Crow for the 21st century. This is Jim Crow this, this is, this is Jim Crow that. And then you say, well, wait a second. You know, New York actually has tougher restrictions on absentee or late or early voting. And look at Delaware. And um, and this stuff is largely within the mainstream. And you can criticize this. But, it, it, you know, but it's not it's not what it's not Jim Crow. And then they fall back on the argument of, well, this law wouldn't even have been passed if Donald Trump hadn't tried to steal the election and peddled the big lie. To which I say, you're absolutely correct that 
yes, Georgia politicians would not be doing, would not have done what they did, um, or at least not have done it the way they did it, had it not been for the fact that Donald Trump selfishly tried to steal the election, lied about the election being stolen, dispatched Rudy Giuliani all around the country to hold, hold bogus hearings claiming fraud on a mass scale and undermine the integrity of the elections. Absolutely true. That doesn't make it Jim Crow. You know, I mean, like, um, you know, I, if I say, uh, um, I don't know, um, you know, chicken McNuggets are made of Irish babies. And, and then you come back at me and say, well, actually, you know, I've seen the plants and it's, it's really made from, from chicken and blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, yeah, but I've seen a lot of drunk Irish dudes eating chicken McNuggets. That's not, you know, that's not a rebuttal. That's not, you know, you haven't won the argument. And, um, and I'm sure I will regret that analogy deeply later when it dawns on me how bad it was, but you get the point. Um, uh, you can hold two things to be true at the same time. What Donald Trump did was terrible and damaging to our democracy. And the response to it doesn't amount to Jim Crow. And that gets to the second, my second problem with it is if you watch these debates, and I'm just basically telling you what I wrote about, but um, if you watch these debates, it's amazing to me how people say, um, you know, defenders of the bill will say, um, you don't know what's in the bill when you call it Jim Crow. And, and that's fine. That's a fine rebuttal because it's true. A lot of people don't know what's in the bill. I mean, Joe Biden got four Pinocchios for saying it got rid of um, late voting or whatever it was. Fine. That's an absolutely 100 legitimate debating point to say you don't know what's actually in the bill. But what bothers me more is that it seems like a lot of people, including some of the people who are saying that, don't know what was in Jim Crow. Because Jim Crow was like, really bad it wasn't in the, and the worst thing about jim crow i'm sorry to tell people who you know fetishize voting and democracy to a point where they think you know undermining a democracy is worse than anything else the worst thing about jim crow wasn't the voter suppression i mean that's bad particularly it was bad because it was an end it was a means to an end which was to keep ba large swaths of american citizens as uh as essentially modern day serfs or members of a, an untouchable caste you know the worst stuff about jim crow was that black people could be lynched the worst stuff about jim crow was that they could be beaten raped and robbed and tortured um and not have recourse to courts or law uh you know the worst stuff about jim crow was that you weren't able to go to good schools or uh, travel across state lines easily because of the way, you know, this is an important point. And, and there's a lot of interesting stuff about Jim Crow, which we don't need to get deep in the weeds on. You know, I'm, I'm of two minds. I, I think C. Van Woodward's, you know, Strange History of, of, of Jim Crow is a really interesting book. And I, I think he states it a little too starkly that it was purely a product of the progressive era, which is an interesting thing for me to say, given how much evil I lay at the feet of progressives during the progressive era. But um, it is absolutely true that there was a lot of racial healing going on until a lot of essentially white pinhead progressive intellectuals and eugenicist types wanted to turn back the clock. Um, and it gets very complicated and we don't need to get into all that right now. But the, the, 
thing that's sort of that that's that's I find fascinating and and um gosh, I can't remember her name, Charlotte. It'll come to me. I've written about it. She's a uh economic historian. She's written about this. Charlotte Tite, Charlotte Height. It'll come to me. Anyway, um and Tom Sowell has written about this as well. You know, in in one sense, yes, I mean Jim Crow is about all sorts of evil notions of 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 racial inferiority and all those things. And I'm not trying to minimize that. But one of the reasons why Jim Crow came about, getting back to that sort of the, the, the stuff about how business responded to it, was that it was um, a kind of crony capitalism. You had a lot of plantation and big farmers types who had been for generations addicted to essentially free labor, you know, for slaves, because slaves were a very expensive input you know poor people poor middle class people tended not to have slaves these were expensive you know i don't want to call them things because they were human beings and slavery was evil um but as as units of production they were an expensive thing to have in an economic sense and uh but once you had a lot of them and had them at scale you had free labor and and so after emancipation one of the things that uh large businesses wanted a large plantation business essentially wanted was to keep the wages of black people down. And so a lot of the Jim Crow laws were made it very difficult to travel, which is very much like what they have in parts of China today again, but um, made it very difficult to travel so that you couldn't, and it made it illegal to advertise jobs in other places, like in the North and in, in Southern newspapers, because they, what they wanted were captive labor markets that didn't have the ability to leverage their market power by moving by essentially voting with their feet to where there were higher wages. And, um, and if it wasn't for that aspect of it, it's unlikely that they would have imposed as many of these Jim Crow laws as they had. And, um, and so my point is, is that, you know, for the full spectrum of evil that Jim Crow was, um, suppressing the vote to me is a kind of minor part of it. Doesn't mean it's not evil, but again, it was a means to an end. It was a way to keep this regime going by denying black people the ability to vote. The idea that somehow a bunch of republic let's just stipulate that the reasonable criticisms of the Georgia GOP are in fact true, that they're terrified that the state is trending purple and may go blue. They're terrified that Democrats are going to be, are going to take over the state and they want um, to rig the election system in a way that makes it a little more difficult for the Democratic coalition to vote and a little easier for the Republican coalition to vote. That would be bad. That would be worthy of criticism and public debate. That would be worthy of scorn. That may even be worthy of the MLB moving to Colorado for the All-Star game. Fine. That's a different argument. That's not Jim Crow. That's not restoring lynching or robbing people of life, liberty, and property. That's not creating separate water fountains. And it's, 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 it, it bothers me greatly that people think that the way to have, the only way you can win these arguments is to say that it is, um, it's Jim Crow. I listened to this piece on NPR yesterday where they're talking about how there was this very charming, um, newspaper editor. And she was saying how, and she, uh, from a black owned newspaper, at least that's what I gathered that has been doing sort of racially focused journalism for three generations and her grandfather found in the newspaper and the reporter asked her, you know, what would your grandfather make of today? And she said, I think he'd be heartbroken because it was all about the, the Chauvin trial. 
and and about how we haven't basically made any progress since you know he first started this newspaper. That's crazy talk. I mean, look, I don't mean to disparage you know the, the lived experience of black people, and I am sure I have every confidence from everything I read that 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 there are things that in my experience I don't appreciate as fully as I should. Great. Um, mea culpa, I plead guilty, whatever. That doesn't mean we haven't made racial progress. Um, and I got into this a little bit in the Wednesday G file, which a lot of people liked, which was nice because I got a lot of blowback from the Friday G file from some people. Um, uh, as a mat, as a legal and constitutional matter, America has never been, uh, less racist. Um, as a cultural matter, we, for the most part, have never been less racist. Um, I think there's a little bit of an uptick, both in terms of identity politics on the left and uh, asinine identity politics on the right. But if you're talking about the last 20 years or something like that, these have been the least racist two decades in American history by literally any measure conceivable. And yet people talk constantly as if there's no, been no progress about how America is saturated in racism and white supremacy and all this stuff. And no one, I mean, I don't want to keep harping on the themes of suicide of the West. No one wants to talk. I mean, the last major democratic politician to actually speak with a little gratitude about how much racial progress we've made was Barack Obama. And he could actually be very good about it. But this, you know, this side of Joe Biden, I think is incredibly ugly when he's talking about how this is the new Jim Crow. This is the same, that's the, as I think it was David French pointed out this week to me, you know, that's like, that's the Joe Biden who said, um, you know, they're going to put you all back in chains. No, they're not. Look, I mean, I, I think my record of being critical of the Republican party around here is pretty freaking solid. They're not going to put you all back in chains. If, if, if the Georgia GOP got everything it wanted in its election reform stuff, that wouldn't all of a sudden create Jim Crow. Atlanta has this thriving black political class. It has a thriving black middle class. Black people have been moving into Atlanta, into Georgia in droves for like 20 years. Do you think they're doing that because uh, Georgia is trending towards Jim Crow? And if, the, if, if, if Georgia Republicans were desperate to have Jim Crow, why didn't they impose it when they had a more solid control of Georgia politics. I mean, I just stop catastrophizing everything. It is not flight 93. This next election isn't the end of the world one way or the other. The other side doesn't want to murder you. Um, but if we live in a, in a political culture where it is assumed that the other side will slit our throats, the first chance they get, you're going to try and slit their throats first. The sort of political psychological doctrine and collective action problem of preemption of we got to get them before they get us is what is turning enormous numbers of people including some friends of mine crazy and i really thought it was going to end when trump left office or at least subside but um uh in many ways it's it's making its run through the institutions on the right and it's it's running rampant on the left and it's nuts and i i I didn't think after Trump left office, I would feel more politically homeless, but I do. Uh, let's talk very briefly about Matt Gates and um, um, what's going on. Uh, uh, so on Friday, I wrote a piece about Matt Gates. I wrote a G file about Matt Gates. A lot of people liked it. I shouldn't have made it sound like no one liked it, but um, uh, I got a lot of pushback on Twitter 
over the weekend because uh, I can't remember her name and I don't want to, you can find it, I'm sure. Um, some press person for some place started this thing that a bunch of, uh, that chum the waters and a bunch of either pro Gates or pro Trump people or just anti me people chimed in because I described how I had seen Gates with a woman at uh, Fox News in the evening who looked like uh, she kept a credit card reader in her purse uh, as a euphemism for being um, uh, a lady for hire, shall we say. And this person flatly assumed that I was referring to one of Gates's staffers. Now, maybe that's a reasonable assumption about what I wrote and I should have been more clear. I'm not sure. But I think that part of the, uh, that assumption works from some knowledge that Gates had staffers who would dress like that. Um, I'd seen Gates in the evenings and Fox more than once. And I wasn't referring to every woman I'd ever seen him walking around with, because sometimes you can tell they're staffers and it's true. Congress people walk around with staffers all the time, but, um, Gates has got more problems because if, if the woman that I saw him with was a staffer, he probably shouldn't have been putting his arm around her. Um, and she probably shouldn't have been acting like she was drunk. And, um, you know, and I, maybe I wrote the thing that I wrote because the way I wrote it was because I was trying to protect, you know, the identities of of various people, including, you know, several people who told me, um, that Gates often brought dates, not staffers, but dates to late night hits at Fox. Um, it was a way to show off. So I, I retract nothing, um, in terms of the substance of what I was writing, I did get some blowback from from some people who weren't fans of Gates, who weren't fans of Trump or anything like that, who thought that that language went a little over the top. I hear you. Um, you know, if I had to do it over again, maybe I would do it a different way. I'm not sure. Um, uh, you know, I the G file is it's I, I kind of write the way I want to write in that thing, and and I expect people to sort of understand that. You know, sometimes I'm a little bit like. Blutarski on a roll talking about how the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor um, because it's the only way I can get the thing done in the amount of time that I have to do it. And a lot of people think that's the charm of it. But again, I I hear what you're saying, but I really, I won't take uh, seriously guff from, I mean, there were people who, like there's some guy who was a former Trump speech writer lecturing me about, you know, how I'm, uh, you know, disrespectful to women and all this kind of, I just, that stuff just, you know, my eyes roll so hard, they might fall out of my head over, um, how you could have worked for someone like Donald Trump or how you can defend Matt Gates and think the issue is my disrespect towards women. I just, I find fascinating in terms of the, uh, you know, the sort of lichen lined stalactite governed caves of some people's psychology. But uh, I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over it. Uh, beyond that, you know, like, I don't know. I don't have much more to say about about what's going on with Gates. I mean, it doesn't look good for him. Um, and um, I do think that people are being a little fast and loose with the sex trafficking charge insofar as uh, as of yet. We haven't really seen that. Um, uh, the. The, the people in the latest story today, the girl, the woman had turned 18 um, when she was involved in these alleged uh, transactions. Um, I don't 
take the position that some of my friends at like reason uh do that that you know prostitution is just fine um and i certainly don't think that uh 38 year old dudes uh paying technically legal you know as 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 some of the websites call it barely legal uh women to have sex with them is a sign of good character or something that i shouldn't have to be able to judge um you know i find it this is one of these weird moments where as someone who's politically alienated from both parties and so much of the sort of the the media infrastructure out there it's a very interesting moment so apparently you know the laptop from hunter biden was real it's got pictures of him doing three ways and all sorts of stuff with um um uh i mean maybe they're um maybe they're actual girlfriends i i, I don't know um but it's fun to watch the outrage and disgust spew forth from the sort of the 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 trumpy maga crowd um about how what an irresolute and scummy dude, which I think by all evidence he is, or at least was, maybe he's recovered. We believe in redemption in this country, but uh, he certainly was a scuzzy guy. Um, and the number of people who are reveling in sort of purient disgust at uh, Hunter Biden, um, but then get sort of outraged at judgmentalism about Matt Gates, I kind of just find funny. Um, they're both sleazeballs as far as I'm concerned. Or at least their, be their behavior that they've been accused of is sleazy and disgusting and is not something that you should expect uh, from a grown man, um, particularly from um, a congressman, by the way. I mean, at least Hunter Biden, I mean, some of the other stuff that Hunter Biden did in terms of making money was, was profoundly sleazy and corrupt as far as I can tell. But in terms of the sex life stuff, you know, there's one thing. I'm, I'm call me a fuddy duddy. I think people who are in public positions, um, particularly people who are aligned with the, uh, the, the party that claims to stand up for Christian and family values, uh, they should behave in ways that, um, reflect on that to some degree. Again, I don't think, you know, anyone thinks I'm a particularly a prude or anything like that. Um, but, and I think this sort of speaks to something that was sort of the gorilla in the room about, my conversation with Dan Crenshaw, um, which some people have problems with. And I, I, I guess I understand this is one of the perils of having politicians on who you're friendly with is that, you know, you kind of want to just give them a chance to do their thing and let people judge them on their own merits and not, you know, get into a, a huge thing. And this is not like a newsmaker interview. He has to come on to talk about, you know, the stuff I've been talking about on the remnant, but yeah, I guess I could have held his feet to the fire more on a couple things. Um, um, but, you know, he was talking about how he thinks Democrats are in worse shape about the problems with their culture. And I just, I, I, I kind of disagree in a profound way, or maybe I don't disagree. Maybe the Democrats or the left is in worse shape in all sorts of, by all sorts of objective measures. But I care more these days about the, the dysfunctions on the right, because the, I care about conservatism and I care that um, these people are allegedly speaking for my side of the argument. and. Um, when they do it the way they do it that I find embarrassing or repugnant. Um, uh, it, it just simply bothers me more, whether it should bother me more, I guess, is an argument for somebody else to make. Um, anyway, if you don't subscribe to the dispatch, uh, and you know, someone who does, 
Um, I do think some people would like the the Wednesday G file. I got a lot of great and interesting feedback on it. I probably should have done it for the Friday G file so we could talk about some of this stuff here. Um, but I'm now uh, 49 minutes or so into this thing, and I, I just don't have I don't have the bandwidth for it without getting some more coffee. Um, but I do want to sort of circle back. I also got a lot of really great feedback on. Uh, the podcast I did about religion with Shadi Hamid, and I know I talked about it a little bit in last Friday's podcast, but um, I think this is a subject I want to keep coming back to um, in terms of religion because it's something I, you know, I, I think I talked about it a good deal in the beginning of The Remnant a couple years ago with like Dave Bonson and some other people, but this whole political religion thing is a fascinating topic to me, and I think that and I would, and I, I like to have some guests on who could push back on some of my contentions, because I mean, for those of you who don't know, part of my argument about um, about fascism was that it was um, uh, a political religion. It was a form of what the Catholic Church officially called it was statolatry of turning the state it was a, idolatry plus statism, statology, and. Um, tree, sorry. And um, it was uh, it was a it was a form of worshiping the state. And um, you know, Mussolini, uh, who was he may have been an authoritarian, and if you want to make that a right wing thing, fine. I can name all sorts of left wing authoritarians. I think that there's nothing inherently right wing about authoritarians, but that's an argument for another day. Um, uh, I do think there's something in conservatism or on the right about authority that is different from the left, but the left has its own views about authority as well. Again, too deep in the weeds to start getting into all that now, but you know, Mussolini was a profound atheist. Um, he used to, when he was a student, stand up in class and dare God to strike him dead with a lightning bolt if he actually existed. Um, and his understanding of politics in the state um, I would argue was fundamentally religious. It was secular, but there are lots of, you know, essentially secular religions, particularly in the East. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he, his definition of totalitarianism, and we get the word totalitarian from Mussolini was that everything's within the state, nothing's outside of the state. And what that meant was it didn't mean Orwell. It didn't mean 1984. I mean, in real life, it translated into that sometimes, although not as often as you might think in in fascist Italy, at least not until the Nazis basically took over. Um, But uh, it was worship of the group. It was we're all in it together, right? It It was like this notion of holistic. It takes a village. Where all the oars are pulling in the same direction. That's what the word fascist comes from. The fascists is a bundle of sticks that means strength in numbers. It was the cult of unity. And I think the cult of unity is very tied in with all sorts of religious sentiments in our brains. And, um, and, it, trans- and it manifests itself in politics in many ways the same way uh, religion would. And the history of um, I would argue the history of progressivism and liberalism, uh, which is not, you know, fascist in the sense of goose stepping and and all of the, and you know invading Poland and all of that. Although the eugenic stuff was very very bad, um, and the racism stuff was very very bad, 
Um, uh, but it operated in many ways as a political religion. And um, it probably doesn't make sense to get too deep in the weeds on this now, but I've, I've as the judge might say, I've opened the door, counselor. Um, you know, and so part of my argument, going back now for a while, is that uh, progressivism uh, during the progressive era, you know, can be directly linked back to thing, uh, thinkers like Auguste Comte. I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, but I think that's right, or Auguste Comte. Um, who was, uh, I think he, I think he's the guy who coined the term sociology, but, uh, he actually invented a thing that he called the religion of humanity, which replaced, you know, traditional Christian saints with people like Isaac Newton and Ptolemy and Galileo. And it was sort of like this worship of mankind as worship, you know, as, you know, worship of yourself or ourselves or our potential, um, as, as the, the focus of, of this religion. And uh, one of the only people to be born into and literally, not figuratively, baptized into the, into the Comtean um, religion of humanity was Herbert Crowley, the, found, the co-founder of the New Republic, the author of The Promise of American Life, which was the progressive Bible. And, um, and again, I, I, I think you can overdo this kind of intellectual history. This is one of these things I've changed my mind about and say, okay, this proves because these... You know, you can do these connect the dot games and and put too much strength into them. But when you look at the way, say, the social gospel in the early 20th century behaved, you know, where you had people like Walter Rauschenbusch, who was probably the most important um, social gospel minister of the progressive era, you know, he would say things like, um, you know, let the God of lower food prices be God which is a very strange thing for um, a, dev- a, a purportedly devout Christian and Christian leader to say. The gist of it was um, that the, his desired economic system should determine how we view who God is and what God says. And this was, and, and, and I think I wrote a GFO about this not too long ago, you know, this was one of the most remarkable things about the progressive era or just the, the, the teens and 20s across Western Europe or Western civilization was the number of people who tried to politicize religion um, by claiming Jesus was the avatar for their boutique thing. So there were all these intellectuals who talk about how um, Jesus was the first socialist or Jesus was the first eugenicist or Jesus was the first nationalist. Um, Obviously, Jesus was the first progressive, yada, yada. And, uh, and I've always thought that this was, among other things, a real sort of reactionary turn because um, one of the great things about mono, you know, I've made this point on this podcast a bunch of times. One of the great things about monotheism is that prior to, at least in sort of the Western tradition, you know, prior to, um, and I only say that because I'm not an expert on all world religions or anything, but I think I'm on pretty safe ground here is that, you know, prior to the, the Hebrew conception of God, gods were basically our servants. You know, we offered up sacrifices to them for fertility, for rain, for crops, for, uh, victory in war. You had different gods who were like different, um, ATM machines giving out, you know, currency for different things. And as long as you, uh, paid the price to them like they were mafia dons, they gave you what you wanted. 
And you assumed that if you didn't get what you wanted, it because you didn't pay enough. And you know, the Hebrews kind of turned that on its head and said, no, 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 you work for God. God doesn't work for you. He's much bigger than all of that. And, um, and, and I think Christianity expanded that as well. And we don't need to get too deep in the weeds and all that. But in the progressive era, you had political religions um, that basically said, no, 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 God is endorsing my own understanding of how we should organize our politics here on earth. And if that person, if, if your conception of God doesn't conform to that, then that's, that's not God. And I think in a lot of ways, this has evolved into, um, this, or a lot of ways it, it evolved into this, this mindset that a lot of people have on the secular side of things that the government is the thing that does the things that God would do if God existed. And, um, um, and I don't mean that necessarily as this profound insult to people. I think it's a real thing with a lot of secular Jews. I know, um, uh, you know, a lot of Jews who brag about being atheists and Jewish, um, is they think that the, the state is the instrument for tikkun olam, right? To repair the world. And that, um, uh, if you had an intervention, interventionist and providential God, uh, he or she or they, um, would, uh, take care of all of these problems. But, uh, since we don't, it's the state that should do it instead. And, um, I think for the vast majority of people, this is not a consciously religious conception of things, but I think subconsciously it acts very much like a religion and it explains a lot of the rhetoric you get about the role of government and the role of state in our lives, that the state is somehow the thing that moves the wheel of history forward. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons why I've always said that liberal media bias, um, was, uh, you know, in some ways written into the verbs of coverage when, you know, when Republicans would remove uh, some bad regulation, uh, you know, Dan Rather would say on the CBS Evening News, well, we took a big step back today, or Republicans turned back the clock. Um, you know, when, 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 when Republicans would make society freer by lifting onerous regulations, that was moving history the wrong way. And when Democrats would pass new sweeping regulations or entitlements or whatever, it was a giant step forward. Um, and this, you know, this gets into this thing I've talked about a lot here about how there are just different conceptions about what conservatism and liberalism rightly or progressivism rightly understood of, you know, the, the Comtean progressive notion is that, um, you know, going back to Thomas Paine, um, in the, in the United States is that we all need to move in the same direction towards the sunny uplands of history together, that there's a specific discrete destination for all of us. The state is the engine or the, the vehicle by which we get there and we can't leave even a single child behind, um, to wherever we're heading. And the sort of Burkean understanding of how politics is, is that it's a space that allows people to be the best versions of themselves and doesn't tell them where they have to go. And I think that a lot of sort of media bias and academic bias 
and all sorts of you know uh, uh, progressive biases that are in our culture, including in places like Hollywood, subscribe to this destination understanding of politics rather than the zone of freedom version of politics. I'm perfectly open to say that they are that they both have merit and that it can't necess- it doesn't necessarily have to be all one and none of the other. But um, uh, I think it would help a lot if people saw that more and recognized it more. Um, because when you don't, you invariably end up pulling people in directions that they don't want to go. And that may be glorious for some people, but it's tyranny for others. And it's not the proper role of, of the state. And, um, and I think anyway, so I, anyway, I, I, I could get deeper into the statology stuff. It's something I'm really interested in. And, um, I realized after I did the podcast with Shadi, I, di- I didn't get into a lot of that. And I think it's a rich thing to sort of discuss and I'm, and I'm open to, to push back on it. Um, um, and yes, I acknowledge that the, you know, the Christian nationalism stuff is problematic too. And I'm happy to talk about that stuff too. Maybe I'll have David on to talk about some of that. Um, and, uh, I guess that's sort of about it. I've gone a little over an hour. Um, I'm just trying to think, is there anything else, um, that I should be talking? Oh, so I have this idea. Um, it is not fully baked. I don't think I talked about it on here. Um, so I, I, have mentioned that I've been listening to this revolutions podcast, uh, which it took a while for it to grow on me, but now I really like, and I'm just working my way through. And, you know, what he does is he just reads, he writes himself a script and he reads, um, a script into a microphone. There's no sound effects. There's no like, um, interviews or any of that kind of stuff, but it's a little more prepared than this, you know, logorrheic movable feast that I do on Fridays. And I'm not saying I want to replace the solo remnant. I I, I might want to do a kind of, I might want to have a, you know, you know, a, a crew come on here that I can have conversations with or something, but that's, that's a different idea for a different time to discuss. It does seem to me that though it could be interesting to do right now. I've written conservatively, uh, I don't know, 2 million words, uh, between books and other things that I've published over the last X number of years. And there are a lot of topics that, you know, I mean, anyway, so the idea would be, um, I wouldn't do super polished scripts or that kind of thing, but the idea would be that like, I would add a new podcast. Uh, Steve wants me to think about keeping it behind the subscriber make it for subscribers only. We haven't worked any of that out yet, but the idea would be to do a shorter, you know, um, but more disciplined, basic reading, um, of something I've written. I could add to it obviously. And I could, I could add lib as I went through it and all the rest because some of it, you know, obviously would be dated, but you know, there are chapters from my underrated book, tuning cliches that often would be perfect little 15 minute vignettes. Um, there are articles about, you know, all sorts of things that I've written that I could, you know, uh, maybe with some help from Nick or whatever, turn into rudimentary scripts and do one-off things on topics that I think are really interesting. Um, and that would add another podcast quote unquote product into the pipeline. Uh, anyway, it needs to be thought through, you know, at some point, 
when we get the bandwidth in which we would have that bandwidth of everybody who listened to this podcast became a dispatch subscriber, you know, we want to do a lot of long form audio journalism stuff, both in terms of reporting, but also do like, um, you know, podcast documentaries about, you know, various topics. I would love to do some about the Wilson era and whatnot, but we want, you know, to do it right and get as much natural sound as we could. And, and, um, um, I shouldn't say natural sound, but you know, sound that fit it might be hard for the Wilson era. It wouldn't be hard for like the, the new deal and whatnot, um, or uh, that kind of stuff. But, uh, I thought this might be a good training ground to, to build up some of that muscle memory as well. So anyway, let me know what you think about that. It's not a done deal. Um, by any stretch and you know i can only spread myself so thin um but i think it might be fun and i find that i keep going back to things i've written in the past and saying gosh i wish i could just do this as a podcast and and then it dawned on me listening to the revolutions podcast well maybe i should uh so think about that and um and do guys listen uh, seriously if if you haven't listened to the riddleman podcast you really should. Um, and if you haven't listened to the Shadi uh, Hamid podcast, maybe you should. I mean, some people just aren't interested in the topic. But even if you're not interested in Bigfoot erotica or in whiskey or in congressional dysfunction, uh, Riggleman's just a trip to listen to and to talk to. And I got to say, maybe we can play it sort of as the closing credits on this thing. There's this moment in it where I had asked him about the you know, he was telling me about, you know, the different schools of, of, of big feet, uh, fandom. And one is that he's just a big ape essentially that has escaped detection. Um, which would mean there are a bunch of them, right? Because I mean, unless they reproduce in ways, um, that defy the book I read, my parents read to me when I was a little kid that was titled eggs do not come from a pussycat. Um, uh, there should be more of them. Anyway, so one theory is there is a big ape. Another theory is that he's an interdimensional traveler, some sort of messianic, uh, you know, protector of the realm type creature, I guess. Um, another is that he's from outer space. And I guess there was a fourth, I can't remember. And, um, and so he was telling me about the interstellar one, the outer space one. And I asked him, you know, how much of this has to do just simply with the $6 million man, uh, versus meets Bigfoot episode, which I loved, which was also a crossover with the six million, which with, with the bionic woman, by the way, and 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 uh, Andre the Giant, who played the Bigfoot, showed up in that as well, um, in that show. But he started giving me this long, drawn out, you know, I, I thought interesting, but also just super weird explanation about all the different reasons why the Interstellar School exists, and he just circled back. And said, but yeah, it mostly has to do with the $6 million man episode. And I, it was one of the first times I have, with maybe the exception of stuff with Chris Darwalt, just affirmatively laughed really hard on the podcast in a, in, in, in a, in a, in that way. And I thought it was just really, really funny. Also, I should be clear, uh, we didn't, we couldn't, after the episode, we couldn't figure out, Nick and I, whether, what, Riggleman's offhand comment about no kill versus no kill was turns out I was right. There's an argument about there about whether or not you should kill Bigfoot to prove he's real or not. Um, and, uh, I think I'm on the side of no kill. Um, because first of all, I just, I'm not into hunting. Um, 
And second of all, if this thing, even if it's just a big ape, if it's sentient enough to have avoided capture um, and detection all of this time, then it's got to be kind of smart. Um, and, you know, maybe even Wookiee smart. And if so, killing it strikes me as not just offensive, but maybe murder. Um, so if you're out there hunting big feet, maybe use tranquilizer darts. Um, you know, or, you know, if you read Bigfoot erotica, there are other ways to entice a Bigfoot into your tent, but we don't need to get into those details right now. So with that, um, I'm going to bid you adieu, have a wonderful weekend, and I'll see you next time. How much of the interstellar stuff can be traced back basically to Andre the Giant on the $6 million man? Um, one of the best, one of the best, you know, that's actually in my book. That's so funny. I don't know the fact that you know that there is a newfound <laughs> respect that I now have, um, which you're talking about the $6 million man against Bigfoot, right? Um, incredible, incredible thing. And I think it can also be traced back to uh, sightings back in Pennsylvania in the 1970s. Uh, if people want to look that up and uh, which was really interesting, you know, where you have individuals shooting at these large creatures that couldn't be killed. That was that coincided with orbs and UFO sightings. But really what it comes down to is that it is all about six million. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> did not know. I did not see you going there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.